some of the stuff we'll read today just reminds me that there are so many people in the world who want to turn from their ways and follow Jesus. And they want to walk in his good ways. They want to believe in his gospel and find salvation. They want his grace. And the reason they're hesitant is that they wonder if they have messed their lives up so much that they're somehow beyond repair. Like, am I too far gone? When you've gone as far as I have, you don't get to come back. There are many people that feel that way. If you've ever done prison ministry, you may have come across people like this who have committed crimes. They're in prison. They know they will be there for the rest of their lives. You proclaim the gospel to them, and they're ready to hear it, but they're looking at the truth of the rest of their life behind bars and wondering, have I just broken it beyond repair? I mean, can I live for Jesus in this prison cell? Would, would he reach out even, even to me? And it's kind of unbelievable. Uh, if you've proclaimed the gospel much to people who live a homosexual lifestyle or a transgender lifestyle, um, one of the things that amazes me, at least the few people that I've gotten to talk to like that about Jesus, is that they don't seem to take very much issue with the moral side of it. It's as if many of them already know their lifestyle is wrong and they're not even offended to hear you say that. What they take issue with is the thought that God might actually reach out all the way to them with as much as they have broken their lives. And some of them have done irreversible damage to their bodies, and they look at the truths of the gospel and they say, well, God saves regular sinners, but would he save me also? And this doesn't just happen to people who are in prison cells or maybe aren't very comfortable coming here. It can happen to us too, right? It's, it's just so easy to look at the way that the sin of your past has affected your life today or to sense how broken you really are and feel like you are maybe the lone exception to God's grace, all right? God saves other people. He saves regular sinners, but does he really save me? So the question that we want to ask this morning is, is it possible to ruin things in your life so badly that God says, well, I had a plan for you, but forget it. Does God do that? That's what we're gonna ask this morning. The reason we're gonna ask that is that as we have walked through the book of Genesis, we have come to a story where humanity really messes things up badly. Uh, we come to a story where humanity reaches a new level of evil and just completely ruins things. And we get to see how God responds to that. It will answer that question. I pray it does so in a way that brings hope to us. Let's start this morning at Genesis chapter six. This is a story of the flood. We've spent the last two weeks, and we spent last week in it, we'll be in it today. Last week, we looked at the life of Noah and what his life means for us. It was a lot of fun for me to talk about. This week, we're gonna talk about what the flood means for you, particularly in your life, particularly if you feel like you have ruined things so much that you can't repair them, that God would not put you back together. We'll start with Genesis 6, verses one through four. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, 
When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, men of renown. We'll start here and we'll read sections throughout the story. Now, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you have probably come across parts of it that are just hard to believe. Like you read it and you're like, am I reading this? Like did an ax head just float? Like did, did this just happen? This is one of those sections where you read it and you're thinking like, did I just read that right? Like, are the sons of God who I think they are? Are the daughters of men who I think they are? What, what just happened here? And the answer is, yeah, you read it right. This is as weird as it sounds. The word, the sons of God, that phrase, the sons of God, used often in the Old Testament to refer to angels. Not always good angels. Sometimes good angels, sometimes fallen angels, angels that have rebelled against the Lord, which we would today call demons. Uh, and the daughters of man, a very plain term for, for human women. Uh, and amazingly, you know, when people come into contact with angelic creatures like this in the Bible, the familiar scene is that the person sees how glorious the angel is, right, and falls down. And oftentimes the angel has to say, no, get up, I'm just, a, I'm just an angel, I'm not the Lord, you don't worship me, right, because the angel is so glorious. But what happens here is just mind-blowing, the angels look at the daughters of men, they look at human women and they say, wow, these women are beautiful. And they see that human women have a beauty that even angels do not have, that even angels desired as they looked there. And we see a profound truth there that's revealed many times in Genesis. Genesis said earlier that men and women are made in the image of God and Genesis is not shy about calling women beautiful. It does it many, many times in the book. We see it here. In fact, the beauty of a human female, a human woman is so great that even angels can look at it and say, wow, that is something we don't have. Why is that? Because people are made in the image of God and the angels are not. So ladies, can you believe that? Can you believe that you have a beauty about you that even the angels in heaven do not have? If some guy has ever dropped a cheesy pickup line on you about you looking like an angel, he's not doing you justice. You, you have a beauty that the, I'm glad some of y'all got that. You, you have a beauty that even the angels in heaven don't have. And when they looked they saw it and they said, I want that. And they rebelled from God's plan. And in some kind of strange thing that, that happened, we were somehow able to take the good gift of God and corrupt it. The strange scene develops where the fathers are so eager to give their daughters to these angelic creatures, whatever they were, probably demons, uh, largely because they knew that if they could somehow interbreed like humans and spiritual creatures, that the result, the offspring, would be something amazing. Maybe our children will be immortal and maybe they'll be great warriors and found nations in their name. And so the, the fathers are eager to give their daughters away to these creatures in marriage. The daughters appear eager to do it so much that it says that the sons of God were able to take whatever wives they chose. Like they got their pick because everybody was so eager to get in on this. We don't know if they, you know, if the demons kind of possessed people and this is how it happened or, or what it was, but something weird went on. And the result was that it kind of worked. 
They made these offspring called the Nephilim, the mighty men of renown, great warriors, who indeed were able to become just incredible. I don't know if they were like superheroes and supervillains or what was going on, but we're, we're really talking about like half angelic, half human creatures that were starting to now take over the world and become men of renown. So just to be clear here, I mean, as clearest terms I can put it in, we really are talking about demon sex and demon babies. That is really what this thing is about. And if that makes you go, what? Then you're getting the point. Like, the point is, humanity had reached a new stage in the progress of evil. We attempted and succeeded in doing something that is so weird and so strange that we don't even make up stories about it today. Like we read about it and think like, what? That's how evil what humanity was doing was in those days. So the point is, we had reached a new stage in the progress of evil, an unimaginable amount of evil going on. Now the Lord had made both the angels and the humans and everything else, and he set things up to work with clear boundaries, right? Like he set this covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and he calls it marriage, and he says, within this covenant, this is how you enjoy sex, this is how you make babies. We will read much later uh, in the Gospels, Jesus talks, and he says that one of the rules for the angels is they don't marry and they're not given in marriage. That's part of the order of how that's supposed to go. Angels aren't supposed to participate in that covenant relationship, uh, but they shatter that, and they do here and the humans do the same thing as well. And you'll see more laws that come when Israel gets its law about, you know, you don't breed this animal with this animal and that animal with that animal. So there, there's a good order that God gives here. He says, this is how you do it. This is, this is the good ways that I have laid down. We took that and we found new ways to shatter it. I mean, at one point, a guy's getting two wives instead of one, and then just every generation, it seems like we find a new way to do some terrible thing. So you could look at all this the way that some of us look at sports. If, if you're a soccer fan, you can think of it in terms of soccer. Like the, the game of soccer has rules, right? And the rules are not like, the coolest thing about the game. Like if you're a big soccer fan, your favorite thing is probably not the rules. But you probably acknowledge that without certain rules, like don't touch the ball with your hands and you can only kick this direction and there's, there's offsides and this is how it works and the keeper can do this because there's special rules for the keeper. Without rules like that, the game's not gonna work, right? If you go out there and start dribbling the ball like it's a basketball, it would just mess up the whole game. It, nothing would work the way that it's supposed to. Because if you like soccer, then you probably feel like the rules of soccer are a good thing. This is how it works. We're all gonna play the same way together and it's going to work well. And what we did was take the good rules, the good order that God gave us and just totally shatter it. Now the world around us today keeps searching for new boundaries to smash, right? Like we are trying to break boundaries in all kinds of ways today, but we have not attempted something as ludicrous as what this generation that we're reading about tried to do. So even in our day, we have not met the sort of evil that's being written about here. 
there are other evidences of how evil humanity had become. Uh, you read in other verses about the great violence that was all over the earth. Uh, just a terribly dangerous place to live. And the reason it was dangerous is because there were other people there who might do terrible things to you. Uh, we'll read in a few moments that our intentions were to do wrong. We were not trying to do right and get better. It says every intent of our heart was to do evil continuously. Like we're just constantly trying to find new ways to break the rules, trying to find new ways to hurt each other to the point that God decides he is going to react. Now, some of us look at that and we see this just gross picture of what it was like when we really tried to break God's rules and we really tried to ruin things. Some of us look at that and we can see a parallel with our own lives, right? Like, I, mean, I look at that sometimes and it's like, yep, I know how to wreck things too. Yes, I'm, I, I too am good at messing up God's plans just like these people did. We're not the first generation to push back against the good boundaries that God has. And in fact, it's probably fair to say that this generation we're reading about has pushed the boundaries more than any of us in this room have tried to do, or maybe even anyone around us. Uh, how does God handle that? What's his reaction to it? That's what we wanna know today. And that's what we get to see in verses five and six. Uh, as we read these next verses, I just want you to see the, the real emotion in them, see in them how God is not a robot and he's not a, a, an artificial intelligence system. He is a real person with emotions. Let's read five and six. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You see the emotion there. He's, he's real. And sometimes it's hard for us to imagine God has real emotions, like he really feels things just like people do. Uh, and that's because he's not an idea, he's a, he's a person, he is real. And he feels things and he has real true reactions to the things that we do because we matter to him. Like a, a mother who just grieves as her son lands himself first in jail and then out of prison and then deeply in debt and then in a gang and then back in prison again and she just weeps and weeps as he does these things over and over again and eventually she sees him sin so much and sees him suffer so much and other people suffer at his hands so much that she just weeps to the Lord and says, God, it seems like it would be better if he had just never been born that ache that can come in a mother's heart. The Lord looks down and we just broke his heart, grieved that he even made us. He only speaks like this twice in the whole Bible, so it's not normal for him to feel sorry that he had done something. The other time, if you're wondering, is with King Saul. He says he's sorry he made Saul king. But what is normal is that God has a real emotional reaction to our sin. Uh, the Psalms say how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Their rebellion in the desert caused grief in his heart. Our rebellion against him causes real grief in his heart. 
You can see it, you can just hear it in Jesus' words in Matthew 23 later when he just, he chews out the Pharisees for a whole chapter. It's a profound chapter. He just goes crazy on that. I'm not gonna read it, so you don't need to turn to it. Uh, And after it just mounts up accusation after accusation against him, all the evil things that they were doing, finally, the clouds that have built just break. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that stones the prophets, how often I longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chickens, but you were not willing. You can just see him weeping as he says this. He longs to have us walking in his ways, in relationship with him, and there is true brokenness in his heart when we walk away from him. So the first thing I want you to see is that he is real and his emotions are real. He cares what we do. There's a real connection there. And for some of us, maybe that's the thing that we need to see this morning is sometimes when you're trying to reconcile with someone, uh, you just really need to see the hurt that you have caused them. Sometimes a father can confront his son over and over about the way he lives and the way he treats his mother and, and this thing and that thing and never get through to him until the one day when after the conversation, the father is alone in his room just weeping over his son's lifestyle. And that day the son happens to see it and just see the brokenness he has caused his father. That can be the day that the son changes his heart toward everything. And maybe for some of us, that's what we need today, just to see that brokenness in God's heart uh, that he really does react when we sin against him. That's not the end of the story. He does have a real emotional reaction to sin. He also does real things. He is just and brings justice on the earth. Uh, We'll read about this in verses 11 through 13. It says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. If you have walked away from the Lord and his good ways, you need to see his character here. He doesn't just react emotionally to our sin. He brings justice, real justice to the earth, and he gives to this generation what they deserve. It's hard for us to to imagine that, that this could be the just and right thing for God to do, but it was. Uh, Consider the the picture I painted a little bit ago of the soccer game, right? Like the game of soccer revolves around the rules. If you don't have the rules, the game doesn't work. The players have to follow the rules. That's why you have referees, right, in the game. Imagine that you're a referee at at a soccer match And the players in this game just begin to defy the rules in the most fanciful and absurd and even violent ways in the middle of the soccer match that you're trying to referee. And uh, one one player just begins to pick up the ball and bounce it like it's a basketball, just dribbling it back and forth. And then he takes a shot and the goal like this. And another player is angry about that. So he whips out a gun and shoots the other player in the head. Next thing you know, the OK Corral breaks out on this soccer field that you were trying to manage as referee, what do you do as referee? You've still got power. You blow the whistle. 
you end the game, clear the field, you kick all of those people who are doing that out of the league in the hopes that the integrity of the game might be maintained, and you spare the one guy over there who was still kicking the ball and still trying to play according to the rules. That is the only right thing to do if you have any respect for the game. And that's what the Lord does. He blows the whistle, he clears the field, he says, all of you who are doing this are out of the game and I will spare the one who is righteous and following the rules. It is drastic, it is great, we cannot make light of it, but it was just and good what God did. He gave us just what we deserved. That is how badly we had ruined things with our violence, with our boundary crossing, with the evil intentions that we had, and that is what the Lord did. A worldwide flood, many months long, uh, everyone except for eight people and a number of animals died in the flood. Extreme, catastrophic judgment that we had earned. If you're wondering what happens to the demons, do they get off or are they punished as well? Well, they are mentioned later, both in 2 Peter and in Jude, and it basically says that at that point, the Lord confined those demons to hell. Now, some demons are able to run around and cause havoc. Those particular ones, no, he confined them there. Where they will be kept, it says, uh, where they will be kept in chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment. So they're confined, they can't get back here and do that anymore, and they are paying for what they did as well. So what you got to see here is that God deals with sin in two extremes, judgment and salvation at the same time. He does not find a middle road between justice and salvation. He is not 50% just and 50% saving. He is 100% just and 100% saving. He does both fully at the same time. Now we saw the justice, that's the worldwide flood that he brings Here's the salvation. We see it in uh, verses 17 and 18. Now, I referenced one righteous person who is still playing the game according to the rules. That's Noah. Here's what the Lord says to him. He says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So judgment, but also salvation at the same time. He is just and he saves as well. And he does this, he says to Noah, I will renew my covenant with you. In our translation, it's establish. Uh, and that's a very important part of this story. That's actually what I'm meaning to focus on today and have been leading up to. So in the Bible uh, and in life, people can make covenants and they can also renew covenants, right? If you were married, you made a covenant with your spouse. You got in front of people, you took solemn vows together, those vows defined your relationship, and now you are in that covenant together. That's something that people are able to do. That's one thing we can do. We can make covenants like that. We can also renew covenants. So a husband and wife can say after the birth of a child that's you know, been perhaps very traumatic and they want to renew their covenant, they can do that, they can renew it. Or maybe one of them has an affair but they reconcile and it's, they're back together and they'd like to renew the covenant. You can have a ceremony, you can do that. So you can make a covenant or you can renew a covenant that's already made. 
And the point that I'm going to make here today hinges on the word that the Lord uses here because he doesn't use the word for making a covenant. He uses the word for renewing a covenant. So he doesn't say to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He says, I'm going to renew the covenant. And that becomes very important. What he is saying there is when I made humanity, and I made promises to them, promises that they will be fruitful and multiply, promises that I wanted them to have dominion over the earth. When I made those covenant promises to them, I meant it. And I'm gonna renew that covenant with humanity with you, Noah. So God still takes that covenant seriously. And he is not going to forget it. And that is why when the Lord actually does the covenant ceremony with Noah later on, all the promises he makes to them have to do with the same things that he promised to Adam. I'm going to show you that next. Let's look to chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9. Now, the blessings that God had given Adam and Eve were a few. They were, they were to be fruitful and multiply. They have the ability to multiply now. Dominion over the earth, covenant blessing that the Lord had given to them. Well, now, look what he says as he renews the covenant in chapter 9. He says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Same purposes, right? To be fruitful and multiply, to cover the earth and to have dominion over the earth. Only now it's adapted for a fallen world. Now he's nuancing it, right? The world has fallen now. Animals sometimes go after us. They don't do what we say anymore. And so he says, I'm putting a fear of you in all of the animals so that you can have that dominion that I promised you in the beginning. Uh, later in verse eight, we will learn that this covenant is with all of humanity. Even if you aren't a Christian, he makes this promise to you, to all of Noah's descendants. Uh, let's start in verse eight, and I'm just gonna read a few verses there, and just note how many times he says, I am making this covenant with every human or every human and animal. He says it like five or six times. He says, then the Lord spoke to Noah and to his sons with them, saying, now behold, I, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. There's one time. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, uh, the cattle, every living beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So he says it again. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. Now it's the third time he said it. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for you a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow that will be seen uh, in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. There he says it a fourth time. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it 
to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh, there it is a fifth time, that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. There is a sixth time. He reiterates six times, I am making this covenant with every living, moving thing, every human, every animal. Humans will be fruitful and multiply. Humans will cover the earth. They will have dominion. And I will not bring a flood like this again on the earth. Why? Because his purpose initially was for us to multiply and to cover the earth and have dominion over it. So he's basically saying, even though this great flood has come and it looks like I don't want humans to multiply and cover the earth, I still do. I still have the same purposes for them that I did. He gives a sign of that covenant. Covenants often have signs. Uh, You might have even a wedding ring on your finger if you're married. That's a sign of the covenant that you are in. Uh, The sign that he gives is a bow, which is the the weapon of an archer. Uh, Now, if a father in a family is an archer in the army and he goes out and he does much destruction with his bow over weeks or months or even years in a war, he comes home and he hangs the bow up on the wall, that's a sign, right? He's saying, Battle over, right? I'm home, bows up on the wall. I don't plan on getting it down for a while and hurting anybody with it. Well, the Lord, the warrior, takes his bow, he hangs it up in the sky. It's not pointed down anymore, the bow is pointed upward. And he looks upon it when there's enough moisture in the air and the clouds start to act like it's going to rain again. And he sees that sign and says, I made a promise to those people, I'm never going to wipe them out. They are my people. I want them to cover the earth. And so when people paint really fanciful pictures about global warming turning the earth into a place that is as barren as the moon is today, we don't, we don't fear that. We don't fear that the Lord's going to wipe us out. We don't think the earth is one day going to look like the moon looks right now or like Mars looks right now because the Lord promised right here to all humanity, I will not destroy them. I will keep them on the earth. That is his plan for us. And that promise is yours even if you are not a Christian and do not want to trust in the promises of God. We will continue to multiply. We will continue to have dominion over the earth from now until the time when he comes back. That's because he keeps his covenants. And one of the big points of this story then is that despite how evil humanity had become, And even as the Lord meets humanity's sin with stark justice and with real emotion, the point is his purposes for humanity still stand. We cannot thwart the purposes God has for us. If spawn of Satan, babies, and a worldwide flood could not thwart the purposes that he has for us, nothing can thwart the purposes that he has for us. And the reason I want you to know that and see this in this text is that what is true for humanity is true for you as an individual. God meets your sin with real emotion and with real justice, 
But if he has made a covenant promise to you, there is nothing in all the universe that could ever cause that promise to be broken. His purposes for you still stand as strong as the day that he made them. So that's our big point today. Uh, if you have messed things up in your life, it may be that there will be real, you know, real consequences for the rest of your life. You can do things that will affect every day for the rest of your life, but you cannot thwart the covenant purposes that he has for you. Now before I talk more specifically about what that means for you as an individual, I just want to show you that this is actually a pattern of God's character. This is not a one-time thing that he does. I'm going to give you two other times in the scripture when he does the same thing so that you can see that even when we just royally mess things up, he keeps his promise to us. First one, it's in the book of Exodus. Uh, if we were to continue today in the book of Genesis, we would see that God would make a covenant with Abraham and then with Isaac, his son, and then with his son, Jacob. And the promise to them was that Jacob, the grandson's descendants, would become a great nation, uh, as numerous as a nation, and they would be given a very specific piece of land that actually some of them in that day got to live in. Uh, and then what winds up happening is Jacob's descendants do indeed become as big as a nation, but they wind up living in Egypt and they get enslaved in Egypt, so they don't get to live in that land for a while. So God miraculously rescues them from slavery in Egypt and to keep his promise to Abraham and the sons, he begins to move them over to this promised land. They're walking through the desert to go to this land that God had promised them. And he says, okay, I'm making you a nation now and I am writing your law for you. He brings Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. He gives to him the Ten Commandments on which are written all of the, or the core of the law that Israel will follow as a nation. And as he is inscribing, you shall have no idols before me. Guess what the rest of Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain doing? They're making an idol, a statue of a golden calf out of the gold that God had given them. And they're worshiping it in great festival. They're not having a prayer meeting hoping that Moses makes it up and down the mountain safely. They're not having a great worship service. Well, they are having a worship service, but to a false idol. And the Lord knows it, and he sees in the middle of this great act of redemption, these people are committing idolatry. And so he tells Moses about it. Here's what he says in Exodus 32. He said, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. So God is so angry with the people of Israel, he says, I want to destroy them all and make a new nation out of Moses. Even though he had promised Abraham that it was going to be Jacob's descendants that would be the nation, he is that mad about what they have done. But Moses knows that the Lord won't do that, and he appeals. And here's what he says in verse 11. He says, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. And now he throws the big hammer on him. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's Jacob. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself 
and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses appeals to that covenant and he says, God, you made a promise and you gotta keep it. And look what the Lord does, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. There is only one reason that the Lord did that because he had promised he would do that. When the Lord makes a covenant, he keeps it. And we can go down to the bottom of the mountain and worship idols and he will win us back and do what he's got to do to keep that covenant. You see it happen many times later, centuries later, the Lord will make a covenant with David and he will promise King David that David will always have a son to reign on the throne. And after him, some of his sons will be wicked men and you'll see the Lord say to them, you have done this and you have done this. And then he says the key phrase, but for the sake of my servant David, and then he says what he will do, because I made a promise to David, I will not remove you from the throne. He keeps his promises no matter how royally we mess them up. So I hope the theme is clear here. God keeps his covenant promises. So because he responds justly to sin, that means that it could mean the things in your life that you have done could affect you for the rest of your life. Like there are real world consequences to the things we do and they don't just come out in the wash like they're real. Uh, a husband, for instance, who has harmed his wife will probably still have to go to jail. He may never have a chance to reconcile to his wife. Uh, we read in the paper about ministers that have abused their authority and those that they lead, they prayed on them and committed misconduct with them. Uh, pastors who have done that have lost the authority that they had. They don't get to minister again. They don't get to earn that position back again. I mean, there are real world consequences for sin and they, they stick. They're with you for the rest of your life. But the point here is that no matter what his covenant purposes for you cannot be thwarted. You cannot lose them. You cannot forfeit them. So you can do some serious damage to the earthly aspects of your life, but you cannot thwart his eternal purposes for you. And that's huge because the Lord offers some other promises to us as well. And if you would receive them or if you have received them, there's nothing you can do to forfeit them. Later on, we would read about a covenant called the new covenant. He says this phrase a few times in the Old Testament, I'll make a new covenant with them. We get the word New Testament from it. Uh, and he talks about it a few times in the prophets. And if you were to sum this new covenant that he makes with sum up, you could use one word, rebirth, or maybe two words, new life. Uh, and, and I just want to read to you some of the promises that are in it. This is a covenant that is available to anyone who would trust him. Uh, Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. 
and their sin I will remember no more. That's one of the promises. He'll write his law on your heart so that you want to follow it, and he will not remember your sin anymore. The next chapter, 32, says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them uh, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. The Lord offers to you, if you would trust him, that he will teach you to fear him so that you would never, ever turn away from them. And if you take that, you can't lose it. Ezekiel says in another place, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And then they will be my people and I will be their God. And chapters later, Ezekiel says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So many great promises in this new covenant that are available to us. But a few we could outline here, eternal peace with God that he is willing to offer us. Cleansing from all of your sins, no matter what they are, he's willing to offer us. A new heart that wants to obey Jesus' ways. Are you tired of a heart that just wants to rebel against him so much? He'll give you a new heart that wants to follow his ways. And to sum it up, in the way that he remade the earth after the flood, he is willing to remake you to give you new life, to give you new birth. This is what Jesus is talking about when he uses the phrase born again. He says if you wanna enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must be made new. And he says this to a man named Nicodemus uh, who's trying to walk in righteousness but is failing at doing it. And Nicodemus says to him, well, how is that possible? How, how can you be born again? How can you receive some of these promises that Jesus had referred to in that chapter? How do you enter this covenant? How do you get new birth and new life? How are you born again? And he, he says, well, here it is. I, in a few years, I am going to be lifted up on a cross and I am going to die. And everyone who believes in me will receive this new life. It's that simple. You believe in Jesus and the death that he died for you and the promises that he made to you and he is willing to give to you new life. That is the new covenant that he is willing to initiate with anyone in the whole world. And it's different from the covenant with Noah in that, you know, if, if you decide you don't want the blessings of the covenant with Noah, well, you get them anyway, right? You, you can't, re he says, I make it with all humanity, the end. This one, you have to believe in the promises of Jesus to receive it. It's not for every, it's offered to everybody, but it's only for those who would trust in it and believe it. And so if you want to receive it, what you must do is put your trust and your faith in Jesus. He will make you new. He will give you new life that cannot be thwarted. And you, you would ask, is it that simple? Like I just believe in him, like where I'm sitting right here and that's it? And the answer is, yeah, it's, it's that simple. You begin to trust him right now and he will make your heart new and you will see the difference as you begin to follow him. Now, 
Covenants have signs. Uh, we talked about uh, marriage ring as a sign of the marriage covenant. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant with Noah. Uh, there's a sign of this new covenant too. And if you want to enter into it, uh, the sign that he calls of you is to be baptized in his name. You're lowered in water, raised up out of it to say that you're united with Jesus in burial and resurrection. It's a sign to everybody who sees it. That person, that person in that baptistry belongs to Jesus and is part of this covenant. If you would receive it on faith, you cannot forfeit it. So the point I just want to drive home as much as I can is no matter how you have wrecked your life or maybe just feel you have wrecked your life, this covenant is available to you. You can receive those blessings of new life simply by trusting in Jesus. And if you already have received it, then its promises remain for you no matter how badly you have tried to break things. Come back to the Lord. Hear his words in Isaiah 54. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. And sinner, hear this, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion upon you. Let's pray.